So I'm very happy that I get to talk about the factor of awakening of joy. And as our mindfulness grows, we naturally become more interested and more aware and connected and awake. All these things start to happen and we get energized and from that energy comes joy. It's the sustained joyful interest and this is the third of the factors of awakening. The Pali word for it is piti and it's often translated as rapture or rapt attention when our attention is completely drawn to the present moment and there's a feeling of delight and gladness and a savoring of the moment, really being interested, not wanting to leave the moment. So it's a quality of heart that savors and tastes experience and it's this beautiful quality of being fully present and delighting um, in the possibility of being here right now, the fullness and a well-being. And it arises naturally in our lives and it's also a product of our practice. It comes as a result of our deepening mindfulness and our deepening sense of awareness. And it's a really important balancing quality in our lives and in our practice because without it, it's very difficult to be in the world and to not get overwhelmed or go into denial or into some form of escape. It's such an important balancing quality. And it brings a tenderness and a strength and a possibility of continuing when things are very difficult. Sometimes our practice tends to be grim and serious. And um, when we first come on a retreat and we look out at you, it looks kind of grim. (laughs) All people sitting here. (laughs) And it's sort of... (laughs) One of my colleagues said it almost looks like the walk of the condemned, the first, <laughs> the first day of walking practice. <laughs> and it's not meant to be a miserable path to the deepest misery. <laughs> it's supposed to be a path to the deepest happiness. Um, but it can feel like that. And for people who first come on retreat and they look at the people around them, they can feel, oh my God, what is this? <laughs> no smiles, just this seriousness. And the problem is when, we're se- when we take it too seriously, we tighten up and we contract. And you can see how um, Gil was talking the other day about posture and about some of you, not everyone was here, about how posture reflects. My ears aren't big enough. <laughs> I need bigger ears. <laughs> Extendable ears, yeah, (laughs) I could bend them over. (laughs) No, it's fine, I can handle it. (laughs) There. So joy helps us open up and lighten up. And even though the Buddha was encouraging us to be with the truth of suffering, It's through suffering that we come to happiness. In fact, it's the doorway, being able to be with the difficulties that enable us to open and let go and find happiness. And joy is the antidote to ill will and aversion. And it helps prevent our practice from becoming dry and striving. One of the um, teachers I've first came across in my practice, Ayakima, said you can't get to awakening without passing through the gates of joy. So lighten up, she said. Often in the Buddha's discourses you read, and the bhikkhus were satisfied and delighted in the Blessed One's words. They were never bored. (laughs) They delighted in his words. And hearing and practicing the Dharma brought delight. And we would hear about that over and over. And the Buddha instructed people to gladden their mind, 
to suffuse with rapture and to find happiness and contentment in the breath. I was reading an article by Shyla Catherine and she quotes him as describing mindfulness of breathing as an ambrosial, pleasant abiding. So to really have the sense of that, allowing the breath to suffuse the whole being. And so often he spoke about how not to be afraid of joy. In the um, practices that the Buddha did before his awakening, a lot of them were very austere and pleasure was to be avoided. But as he finally came to realize, um, the doorway can be through joy. There's no need to be afraid of it. Even though there is the possibility of becoming attached to pleasant states, they do in fact lead to awakening, to letting go. And that we can practice all of the trainings of sila, samadhi, concentration practices, of the wisdom practices, all of them through the perspectives of happiness. We can infuse everything with that. So that's what I'd like to explore with you this afternoon, to notice whether joy is present or not, and then how to cultivate it, how to maintain it. So right now, just notice in your awareness, is there joy present or not? If it's present, what does that feel like in the body, the mind, the heart? And if it's not present, what's that like? What's the mind like that has that joy is not here? Just to notice what they what both of those feel like. And so then we can explore what nourishes and what supports joy. The first thing is the establishing of sila or integrity as we did at the very beginning of our retreat this commitment to non-harming. The Buddha often spoke about the bliss of blamelessness. And he would say, let non-regret arise in me. It's natural that a joy should arise in me. It's born from freedom, from remorse, from this following of the precepts. By removing negative thoughts and being free from worry and sorrow, he said, one experiences joy in oneself. And in the Dhammapada, it says, speak with a pure mind, with a pure heart, and joy will follow you as surely as your own shadow. So that's that inclining the mind to joy. When we make choices that are in line with our values, we can really feel that sense of satisfaction and contentment. We feel aligned with what feels right to us. And we're unburdened by regret. When we're able to live in harmony with the precepts, it's a gift to everyone. Innumerable beings benefit. We can all live free from fear, free from ill will. And it's a beautiful state of mind to feel that sense when we're supported on retreat um, and feeling safe. And reflecting on generosity is another wonderful way of supporting joy. And um, Pema Chodron has, she likes slogans, as some of you know. And she has this one slogan that's stop, notice, appreciate and share. So if you're having a moment of happiness, you stop and you notice it. And then you appreciate that state. And then you make the wish that all beings everywhere might experience such happiness. And if you're experiencing difficulty, you stop and you notice and you bring compassion to yourself for your difficulty. And you make a wish that all beings might be free from such difficulties. So that sense of interconnectedness brings joy. 
And it's these little moments when we're generous or when we see other people being generous that bring um, delight and happiness. I was on traveling by bus a couple of weeks ago and um, the bus driver on, on this particular bus was being really um, good-hearted to everyone. This was an express bus that only stopped in certain places and an elderly woman got on and she hadn't noticed it was an express bus and she wanted to get off and if she couldn't get off at her stop she'd have to walk a long way. And the bus driver ignored all his regulations and stopped the bus and let her get off. And then someone else came with two small children and he really took the time to make sure that she and her kids got on. And there were several little things that he did that were out of his um, regulations. And when it was time for me to get off, I, I sort of stopped and looked at him and I said, you know, you made my day, thank you so much. And he smiled and he said, thank you for noticing. And so there was this exchange between us um, the, he bought me joy and in return he was really happy that um, someone had seen that and appreciated him. So there are little things that bring joy to each other when we can have that sense of appreciation. Gratitude practice is really important in our lives. Someone was sharing with me again a few weeks ago. Um, they said, do you know the gratitude alphabet? And I said, what do you mean? And they said, oh, I'm grateful for apples. I'm grateful for butterflies. I'm grateful for caterpillars, <laughs> you know, and so forth. And so you can, it brings joy in just seeing, well, is it animals I'm grateful for today? Is it music? Is it people? And just to have fun doing the gratitude alphabet. So if you're in the middle of a really miserable sit, <laughs> try the gratitude alphabet. <laughs> and see if it can bring some joy. So, when we come to our practice and also in our lives, full presence is really a condition that supports joy. It's that immediacy of direct experience. When we're distracted and when we're separated, we're not able to connect with joy. Joy arises from being fully engaged in whatever we're doing, that full presence. And I remember as a child um, seeing Yehudi Menuhin, the violinist, play, and he had so much joy in his whole being playing that even though I was very young, I could just feel his joy. And lately I've seen this two young men, the um, two um, cellos, and whether any of you have seen these two young guys that play the cello together, um, all different kinds of music, and they're both completely absorbed in both the music and each other and in bringing, you can feel the joy of their full engagement in what they're doing. And it's not a joy that comes from getting something or from grasping something, but just from fully being in the moment where our, in our practice our body and mind are filled with awareness, just fully there. The word in Pali is um, pivati or pivati, a kind of drinking in of, 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 it might be the breath or it might be the sensations or it might be a sound. So we're learning to practice being filled with ease or with energy filling the body. And it brings delight and joy when we can do that. So just sense that possibility right now. Just sense your body filled with awareness. It might expand to around you. Just this sense of fully being here. What's that like? And it can build on itself. And it's like watering a seed of pleasant pleasure that's not dependent on anything external. It's simply because we're here, aware, in the present moment, with a mind and a heart that are not needing anything different to be happening, 
or not needing anything particular, just being right here. And it's not confined to deep states of absorption or concentration. It's just, it can be very simple, just being here, appreciating simple things. Pooh and Piglet are walking along. And Pooh says to Piglet, what day is it? And Piglet says, my favorite day. Oh, I'm sorry. Let me try again. Pooh says what day it is. Piglet says, it's today. And Pooh says, my favorite day. (laughs) So any moment can be enough, any day. And so it's, again, just full, fully being in the moment. And um, I really like this story about the, um, the, art, the Japanese artist Hokusai. He says, From the age of six I had a mania for drawing the form of things. By fifty I had published an infinity of designs. But all I have produced before that age, before the age of 70, is not worth taking into account. At 73, I learned a little about the real structure of nature, of animals, plants, trees, birds, fishes, insects. In consequence, when I am 80, I shall have made still more progress. At 90, I shall penetrate the mystery of things. At 100, I shall have reached a marvelous stage. And when I am 110, everything I do, be it a dot or a line, will be alive. I beg those who live as long as I to see if I do not keep my promise. Written at the age of 75 by me, once Hokusai, today Gwakarojin, the old man mad about drawing. So it's just joy in, in possibility not having any limits about the possibility of what we can do. And in our practice here, as we gradually draw our attention away from the distractions and the discursive thoughts, as we gradually come in, turn into awareness, turn towards presence, we start letting go rather than holding on. And the body and heart and mind start to open and relax. And it's in that opening and relaxation that there's the possibility for what's difficult to move through and for joy to arise. When we grasp, it creates a kind of imprisonment. Gil was talking yesterday and again today about that constraining, how things are constrained and they get caught and imprisoned. And as we relax and open, there's a releasing and we're more here and there's more potential for this sense of openness and beauty. As we let go of the preoccupations, we can be more present and we can release. And we're actually releasing and letting go into something. We're releasing and letting go into the breath, into the body, into full presence. And that makes more space and more possibility. The awareness is filled with direct experience. And you can sense that as I'm talking, the direct experience of the sensations of your body, of your breath, of hearing, of sound. And there's a sense of pleasure in just being present. And we're more fully engaged in life as that attention starts to unify and collect and come in. And we're less interfering with how life is flowing and moving through. And because of that, we can be more open to allow pain to move through, distress or fear or doubt, whatever it is, without interfering with how it's moving. And as we do that, then compassion naturally arises. And whatever the difficulties are, are liberated, and the flow of presence becomes stronger. We're not so caught. And we're building a deeper and deeper capacity 
to be with difficult things. Someone on retreat that I was with once, it was right after 9-11, and a lot of people were experiencing suffering and distress at the world. And one person um, went into the woods and really allowed her grief, and she was noticing um, you know, aversion, unpleasant, so unpleasant, and um, the difficulty of that. And at some point, noticed she was noting pleasant, pleasant. She said, what's this? And the tears were coming down, and the, t- the taste of the salt was pleasant. <laughs> and she looked, opened her eyes and looked around, and the trees were beautiful. And the nat- nature around her was beautiful. And so in allowing the depth of her grief to move through, there was room also for joy. And so there's that balance. And trust that if we can really allow the depth of the the sorrow through, then there's room for joy. The sorrow isn't containable. The difficulty isn't containable. And so when we don't try and contain it, it can move through. And it also arises out of clear seeing. As we begin to understand more, when suddenly we have an understanding of some difficulty in our life, we can, there's delight in that. Oh, I got it. And many of you have had delight at having insights. They may be very small insights, but there's a joy and relief. That's what was going on. Hooray! Finally, I understand that habit pattern. And there's happiness in that. And as our practice and our mind get free from the hindrances, there's relief and joy. And the mind is suddenly clear and bright. And wow, it's wonderful. And it's as though um, in the suttas it talks about the delight that comes when we are out of the, out of the debt of desire. There's the, there's the joy in being free from the de- debt of desire, in being, re- in being healed from the hindrance of aversion, the sickness of aversion, in being um, released from the prison of torpor. When you're stuck in the prison of torpor, the door to the prison may be open, but you're too sleepy to get out. But as gradually your practice builds, there's joy in getting out of that prison and being released from the slavery of restlessness and worry and the relief from having crossed the desert of doubt. As all those hindrances start to release, joy naturally comes and the mind is clear and bright because they're gone, even if it's momentary. There's delight in that. Yes. A moment when there's no doubt, and you can feel the joy at that. So I'd like to talk a little bit about the things that block joy, um, because I think it's useful to really explore those. And of course, the states of wanting and aversion both really um, obstruct our joy. One, sometimes when, where as joy starts to arise, um, we're wanting, we want more, or maybe we've been striving uh, to come to a place of clarity, and there's a striving there with the joy, and the, the piti or the joyful energy can get very kind of um, jagged and sometimes unpleasant, and some of you have experienced this. It's a um, a sort of restless, agitated energy that comes, not so much pleasant as uncomfortable. And those are states that come and go, but if we can bring some calm and tranquility in, it's really helpful. And to notice when we're caught in wanting, because um, the wanting creates a contraction, and it's hard for joy to flourish and flow, when there's wanting and desire in the mind. When there's relaxed attention, 
then the delight comes naturally and it can be a powerful antidote to aversion and ill will. The simile for ill will is like this bubbling um, pond that's unpleasant and um, disturbed and difficult to be with. And um, it's the ill will that finds fault with everything. Nothing is right. Everything is unsatisfactory. The breath, the body sensations, the mind states, everything. And so if joy is the antidote to ill will, then how do we get <laughs> from ill will to joy? It doesn't, doesn't seem to make sense. So what we, we can't will joy to happen. We can't make it happen, but we can create the conditions. And if we're caught in aversion, then it really helps to intentionally bring friendliness into the space, just as we were doing with our loving-kindness practice, bringing goodwill to the breath or the body, having a sense of appreciation for ourselves, just bringing friendliness in, and not expecting that it will have a result right away. You know, as Gil was saying, okay, I've been friendly for two minutes, I should feel better already. (laughs) But just knowing it's a gradual thing, just by having a little bit of goodwill, inclining the mind to friendliness rather than judgment, gradually builds that capacity. And the mind starts to feel softer and lighter rather than heavy and um, grim. And often what you'll notice um, is that if, if, you've, if, you're, if you're sort of in a place where you keep getting distracted, say, or you find yourself falling asleep, there's that moment of irritation or disappointment often that can come afterwards for many of us. I don't want to be sleepy. I don't want to be getting distracted. And there's an irritation. And if you can bring that that friendliness and kindness, oh, I'm back again. Just the fact that I noticed I was off or I noticed I was sleepy is already a moment of mindfulness. Appreciation for returning. Return. Just noticing is already present. The irritation is extra. (laughs) And so if we can bring friendliness in, um, and even noticing the irritation is already a moment of mindfulness. So not judging that either. Oh, I wasn't friendly. (laughs) So (laughs) it's like a, a compilation of unfriendly moments. And having humor, there I go being unfriendly again, is helpful. For some of us, um, it's hard to have to have a sense of the body being a safe place to return to or a good friend, especially if we've had trauma when we were small. It's hard to ha- bring friendliness in or have a safe place to come back to. And so it's being patient with that and reminding if that's true for you, well, it wasn't safe then, but in this moment it's safe. Perhaps it could be safe just for this moment. Can't guarantee any other moments, but just this moment, right now, in this meditation hall, I could be safe. There could be a friendly moment. And so, even though we can't will the friendliness or the joy or the appreciation to appear, we can cultivate and sustain and have patience. And that will lead to the openness and ease. And it is helpful to see that there's a choice. We can redirect our attention. We can redirect away from the um, aversion and fueling the aversion and redirect towards friendliness. Just noticing. It's like shifting channels or closing the unfriendliness window. and opening a different one. That's helpful. So it's, it's, it's really important to notice what we're connecting and sustaining our attention on. 
Am I connecting and sustaining on negative stories? Are we feeding them? And to stop, um, one person that I was working with got really caught in negative stories over and over again, particularly about the future. And then she came up with her own mantra. And her mantra, which I really like and I've used myself, is not now, don't know, let go. So if it's helpful to you, use it. Not now, don't know what will happen, let go. And so that helped her come back. One of the most significant ways we block joy in our practice and our lives is judging and comparing, whether it's directed outwards or inwards. And it's seeing the negative patterns in everything. It's this something's wrong glasses that we have on. Wrong with me, wrong with the practice, wrong with the world. And it's such a strong habit pattern and a strong energy drain that we can get caught in. And it's really hard to progress to joy if we're caught in that. Um, There's a a story from... um, there's a book called The Chocolate Cake Sutra by Jerry Larkin, who's a Zen teacher. And she talks about a time in her life um, when she noticed that she was a single parent, that she and her daughter were whining a lot and complaining. And she happened to get a job, um, a part-time, part-time job, in China for a while as a tour guide. And her job was to guide very, very wealthy tourists to all these um, beautiful places and so forth. And then she and she noticed after a couple of days that they complained about everything. There was too much food, there wasn't enough food, they visited too many sites, they didn't visit enough sites. And at the end of the day, the, during the day, there were all these complaints. And she thought, these people have everything and they're complaining. And so she found she was complaining about their complaining. And so when she got home, she decided, that's it. I've had it with complaining. And so she said, from now on to her daughter, you and I are not complaining anymore. And so, of course, they they couldn't do it. They were, judge, you're complaining. No, you're complaining. (laughs) So then she thought, okay, we'll try something different. We'll have complaining hour every day between five and six. We're not allowed to complain the rest of the day. (laughs) Only a complaining hour. And so... During the day at work or at school, they saved up all their complaining (laughs) for complaining hour. And they had so much fun during (laughs) complaining hour. But she said not only were they able to really laugh at it and enjoy it during complaining hour, but she realized during the day there were so many times that she refrained from complaining that she was able to let it go and that it started to be that she didn't have things to complain about anymore because she was changing where she was putting her attention. Instead of looking at what was wrong, she started looking for what was going well in her life. And so they stopped using complaining hour. And then after a number of months, they had to reinstitute it. <laughs> but. Um, but anyway, I really like that story, and it's, it just shows that we don't have to follow that pattern of always looking for what's wrong. And we can redirect the energy into seeing what's positive on our lives and looking at the positive qualities in our own hearts and minds instead of looking at what's wrong. Sometimes on retreat, we can get into a mistakes review. I find that every couple of retreats, I'll have one day (laughs) that's an all the mistakes in my life review. It's very unpleasant, (laughs) but it seems to happen. One of its useful functions is when you do that, you get a chance to forgive yourself. So it's not um, a bad thing, but if you get caught in believing believing it and not forgiving yourself, it's very painful. And so it's really helpful to intentionally switch off some of the destructive patterns, destructive programs, um, so that we don't get caught in them. But when we do find that happening, and that kind of review comes up, and we're seeing 
our mistakes and our difficulties, if we can allow them to move through with compassion and without blame and just, oh, regret that that happened but not um, guilt, then as they move through, there's room for joy. There's a kind of emptying out. There's a forgiveness of ourselves, a forgiveness of people in our lives, and the heart is open and happy and free when we let go of that burden. And with the comparing mind piece, um, when we compare ourselves to other people, on retreat that can be so painful. We can think sometimes that everybody but me is getting it, or their concentration is great, my concentration is terrible. Or maybe we think, everybody else is so mindless, I'm so mindful. It can go both ways. And one of the early Buddhist nuns, Abhirupa Nanda, said, um, in, in, and this was about joy, about realizing joy. She said, give up the tendency to judge yourself above, below, or equal to others, and joy will be yours. So just like in any kind of comparing, I'm as good as, I'm not as good, I'm whatever. And it's really addressing that never good enough mind. Can this moment be enough? This practice right now is enough. Because we can get so caught in not enough mind or not enough moment. this moment right now, can it be enough? And sense the settling in that. Another of the blocks to our possibility for joy is when we get caught in that restless mind that has to be on to the next moment. Sometimes it takes the form of rushing through our moments, or sometimes there's just that little bit dissatisfaction. The next moment, the next moment, we're always over there. There's a lovely cartoon I saw a long time ago, and there's this man who's going like this in the cartoon. What was that? What was that? And underneath it says, Bob experiences a pleasant moment. So it's being present for our pleasant moments. And actually here for them, (laughs) rather than just this leaning forward energy all the time. So sometimes our energy gets caught in fixing to make things better, because somehow there's this underlying worry, it will be fine when I get there, when I get there. We're worrying about the future. I love that dire strait song, and sometimes it will come up for me on retreat, Why Worry Now? I'm not going to sing it for you. (laughs) That might not induce joy. (laughs) But it's, there's always sunshine after rain. Why worry now? And it's sort of that reminder of impermanence. This moment of whatever it is, worrying about the future, worrying about this moment or the past, um, it's just a moment of worry arising. There's sunshine after rain. And we, we can start learning to recognize those patterns of worrying about the future, worrying about the past, being bound in time in that way, what might happen. Here's Pooh and Piglet again. They're walking along. And Piglet's, they're walking through the forest. Piglet says, suppose a tree would fall down while we're walking under it. And Pooh says, supposing it didn't. (laughs) And Piglet was comforted by that thought. (laughs) And so it's it's that, (laughs) that it might not happen. And can we just relax into how it actually is right now? Can we be free from constraints of time? And that can bring joy. 
can we be free from the constraints of self? The fixed ideas that we have about ourselves that limit our possibilities, the stories of me that we have, our assumptions, our beliefs of who and what we are, what we're capable of, what we think we can't do, and just be open to not knowing. Gil was talking beautifully about the path of Dharma as realizing a wholeness, as just all of who we are, not seeing ourselves as fragmented, as projects to be fixed, but just the whole of ourselves. And there's joy in realizing that wholeness. This is from Arjan Sumedho. He says, when the heart is free of the illusions of self, there arises a loving quality in the pure joy of being. Without expectation of being anything or anybody, nor the expectation of anything lasting or being permanent. Joy in just being, this moment. So with that joy, there's less clinging to ideas about ourselves and it starts dissolving some of the barriers and there's a feeling of wholeness and of, of beauty. And there's a relief at that. Some time, um, a couple of years ago, um, I was about to teach a New Year's retreat with Gil. And I just arrived and I was walking, this is Spirit Rock, I was walking up the hill and I met somebody and they said, oh, I so much appreciated your teaching on the last retreat. You're so wise and you're so this and you're so that. And I went away thinking, oh my God. <laughs> Now I have to live up to this and it's not really me. And I went into a room and sat down and I thought, you know, that's not who I am. I don't feel very wise. I don't feel very competent or whatever it was. And I closed my eyes and I, I, I thought, I feel like this house of cards, you know, those house of cards that you build. And that really, I'm just a fake. <laughs> and that, you know, what if they all fall down? Everybody will... We'll see that there's there's nobody there. You know, there's not. You know, there isn't any one who's wise. And so I closed my eyes. I thought, well, what if they all do all fall down? And I just had this sense of a bit of fear, and just allowing. I kept allowing that to happen, and then they all fell down, and there was just this opening into oh, nothing, and there was just this pure joy of being of not being anybody or doing anything or having to become anything, but just the pure joy of being. So that was such a relief to let all the cards of ego structure fall down and just be. Lily Tomlin once talked about how um, the self-image being the major cause of stress and she said, I always wanted to be somebody. I guess I should have been more specific. <laughs> and so there's a, a relief in, in not being anybody. And it's wonderful to be in the presence of people who have this unconditional acceptance of themselves, who don't, don't seem attached to any kind of self-image or concern about that. And I had the privilege of being at an event with the Dalai Lama, Desmond Tutu, and Rabbi Shakta Shalom. Um, they were these three teachers. And um, just seeing their joy in being and their unselfconsciousness. And the Dalai Lama had been teasing Desmond Tutu about his belief in God. And the rabbi le leaned over and patted the Dalai Lama on the knee. And he said, that's all right. I don't believe in the God that you don't believe in. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then they, were, they continued to sort of have fun with each other. And someone um, in the audience was really praising Desmond Tutu for his humility and how humble he was. And he sort of said, you all think I'm so humble. Let me tell you, when I first came to America, someone gave me a baseball cap. 
and I tried it on, and it was too small. And someone said, oh, I'm so sorry, the hat's too small. And my wife said in this big, loud voice, no, his head is too big. (laughs) (laughs) And so there was just this joy in the room at their ability not to take themselves seriously. And so if we can be that way in our lives, when we see ourselves make mistakes or we see ourselves fall down in our practice or have a moment of grief, to have that ability to not take ourselves seriously, is have that lightness, is a gift. And there's also love in that. There's a loving quality in that ability to, to have gentle humor with ourselves. So we're not separate from life. There's a feeling of connectedness and wholeness. And there's a beauty and a vulnerability in that as well, when we're less identified, when we can laugh at our vulnerabilities and appreciate our strengths um, and draw on that. And our practice sooner or later is leading to the joy of letting go. The more we trust, the more the possibility is to let go. And there's to let go of all the stuff that's sticky that we're holding on to, whatever it is. And whatever difficulties we're experiencing, to be able to open to the possibility of finding joy in small things. One of a friend I I know that was sitting a retreat once in Europe and she had a lot of pain at the time. She'd had an injury, a motor vehicle accident, and was in a lot of physical pain. And she'd been sitting in the hall trying to work with the pain. And one day she went out for a walk and she just stopped trying to do anything. This was in Europe. And she just started to look around at the hedgerows. She said the flowers and the smells were so beautiful and there was so much joy in just noticing And so one of the phrases that I find so helpful is, what else am I aware of? So when you're caught in some difficult state, whatever it is, to just, what else am I aware of? What else is here right now? Because there's always some possibility of connecting with those beautiful qualities. So turn to awareness to turn to nature, to turn to our own beautiful qualities, to turn to the qualities of others. And then we can release. So I'd like to um, just summarize by reminding us that it's possible at any moment to come into full presence to drop out of the stories, to release whatever's happening, to come into full presence of what's here right now. It's so simple. And it brings a softness to the practice, a lightness, an ease, and joy can come from that. We can start to be able to receive every kind of experience with interest, with curiosity, with gentleness and we're more able to be with things as they are. And then we have a resilience and we're less dependent on things turning out the way we want them. And it's a soothing kind of joy that brings tranquility and calm to the mind. Sometimes Sometimes what happens as joy comes into our practice is a lot of energy comes in and the joy gets bouncy. I'm sure some of you have noticed that. Maybe not yet this retreat, but in other retreats. It's kind of bouncy joy and delight and energy and so blissful and precious. But it can get a little, as Gil was saying the other day, giddy. And so we need to balance the transition between energy and the next quality of calm so that the joy becomes smoother and soothing 
a soothing, gentle joy rather than this overexcited joy. And mindfulness and helps us see when that's happening so that we can use the breath and the body to help bring more calm and to settle the joy into this deeper peacefulness that can lead us more towards um, wisdom and clarity and awakening. So I'd like to end with this poem by Mary Oliver called Mindful. Every day I see or hear something that more or less kills me with delight, that leaves me like a needle in the haystack of light. It was what I was born for, to look, to listen, to lose myself inside this soft world, to instruct myself over and over in joy and acclamation. Nor am I talking about the exceptional, the fearful, the dreadful, the very extravagant, but of the ordinary, the common, the drab, the daily presentations. Oh, good scholar, I say to myself, how can you help but grow wise with such teachings as these? The untrimmable light of the world, the oceans shine, the prayers that are made out of grass. Every day I see or hear something that more or less kills me with delight, that leaves me like a needle in the haystack of light. So just sensing right now the possibility of opening to joy, wholeness, delight. Whatever your experience is in this moment, whether it's easy or difficult, to allow it to be supported by the gentle, open energy of joy. <laughs> 